on any list that is likely to be compiled of the greatest reporters in the history of Chicago journalism, it would be a long, long list, believe me. On the top of that list would be the guy sitting next to me in here, Maury Posley. Well, Do you believe that? They don't, they, hyperbole. they don't call you Captain Hyperbole <laughs> for nothing, right? <laughs> Maury was for many years. Uh, first, we worked together at the Sun-Times, and then we worked together at the, at the Chicago Tribune. And then we wrote a book together called Everybody Pays, which was one of the great experiences, creative, emotional, every kind of experience you could have. Uh, we wrote that 21, two years ago. Yeah, yeah. Well, it came out. Remember, it was published right after nine eleven. Yeah, coupled, well, so that well, I remember it distinctly because I never forget that <clears throat> we were very enthusiastic about the book, and we we thought it was a great story, and many people thought it was a great story, and Harold Ramis bought the movie rights to make it, and Jimmy Breslin, the great columnist, had called and said, "I love this book. I love this book. I'm going to write about it." And then nine eleven happened, and Jimmy didn't write about it, but it was still an amazing experience. One of the great. I was with somebody, maybe someone was on this show a few weeks ago, and says, uh, "I said, did you have a book party for your book?" He goes, "Yeah, but nothing will ever beat that party you imposedly had at House of Blues." That was a great party. We sold seven hundred or something books, and they could have sold. You oh, know, they could have. That's thousand. Half, yeah, yeah, I know. Could have had know. a thousand. That was a great experience. Do you miss the newspaper business? I don't. Uh, I I really never look back. I miss what I miss about. The, the newspaper business is the camaraderie. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've worked at home. Uh, so I, before the pandemic, I was, you know, I've worked remotely since then. And it's being in the office and being able to turn around and chat up Mary Schmeek, who sat right behind me, yeah. or, or walk over to Steve Mills's desk and, and talk about a, a case that we're investigating. And there's that atmosphere in a it's not really an aroma, but it's 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 a rarefied air kind of situation. I think, yeah, but I also think it's kind of gone everywhere. I mean, you look at what's happened in the Tribune. We were in the tower, and we were in the Prudential building, and fewer and p- fewer people started coming in at all because they realized, well, wait a minute, I can write my stories in my underpants, and I can write my stories having a Jack Daniels on the rocks, and I can do right, all right. this stuff. What do you work? Who are you working for now? Well, you're still doing what you have been doing for thirty some years. I am helping people. Is basically the big umbrella for me is helping people. I, I think so. I work. Uh, I'm officially my title is project scientist. Oh wow! At, at the University of California, Irvine. It's a three university project: Michigan State and uh, Michigan Law Schools and UCI. And uh, it's an online database called the National Registry of Exonerations, and we catalog every wrongful conviction that we can find. Uh, we know we don't get them all because we're finding ones that happened in the past yeah, and sure. adding them. Um, but these are um, people who meet a criteria that we have set where they are convicted. Their conviction is set aside. There's new evidence of innocence. And they either get acquitted at a retrial or the case is dismissed. And so it went online in 2012. I've been there 10 years, uh, amazingly. And I've written about 2,400 stories of people wrongly convicted. 
and each one is its own individual tragedy. Well, I mean, you have told me over the years, plenty of them, and it's one of the great tragedies of the American legal system that this happened in such astonishing numbers. So, <laughs> you may not know this, but oh, a month and a half ago, I went to a conference in, of all places, Saudi Arabia. I saw pictures, yes. And it was... Um, I went through some bit of hand-wringing and talked to a lot of people about whether about the optics of it. Mm-hmm. And I eventually reached out to someone that you may remember, Bill O'Connor. Very uh, well. And he had, I remembered that he had left City News Bureau, where we met. Yeah. Went to law school, went to Schiff, Harden, and Waite, and they opened an office in Riyadh, and he was there for about a half a dozen years. Wow. And so I, I tracked him down. We sort of lost touch for about the last 20 years and he said you absolutely have to go you have to go and so um they, they look like i will tell you this i mean i deep dive deep into what you did there but it like wow what a nice hotel this <laughs> it was a great place yeah. they, he said they'll take care of you that was my takeaway wow what a nice hotel i was worried about well covid right sure he said don't worry they invented strict they'll take care of you and I met three other Pulitzer winners there. Mm. Uh, all of them had the same reaction when they got the initial email. Is this a scam? And then ask for a Zoom call with the organizer yeah. to see someone in the flesh. But so I, they had, the format was uh, panel discussions with Nobel laureates. Yeah, right, right, right. And then they asked for three people from the and friends, other prize winners. That's what we were. Um, to make you get two minutes and they'll give you a topic and so mine was what uh happens when politics overtakes values and the unintended consequences wow and so in a minute and 49 seconds i managed to go from 40 years ago crime was rising everyone was afraid there was a lot of fear the reaction was we'll make sentences more longer harsher and now, 20, 40 years later, we have the highest incarceration rate in the country. Yeah. And I deal with a collateral consequence of that, which is people wrongly convicted. Innocent people, yeah. So we have almost 3,200 people in the database. Collectively, they've lost 27,000 years oh. in prison oh. for crimes they did not commit. Oh, and it's, and, and it's chilling. And when you know, Kathleen was there, my wife. His and, wife. And she... Did a video, but she said that when I hit the twenty-seven thousand number, there were audible gasps. Oh, I can imagine. Um, I can imagine. So, you know, what our database does is provides data to policymakers, uh, legislators, mm-hmm. educators, people who can try to move the needle to prevent these. You know, I say the good news is we're exonerating people. The bad news is we still have to exonerate people. Yeah. You think there are more thousands more than, of course. We don't. Do not, we have. We have, have no, no idea. idea. Yeah. I say we only know the ones we know about. We don't yeah. know how many people died in prison before they could be exonerated. Mm. I mean, we have a list on the website of. Everyone. What is the website? What's the website? Well, you just Google. I, I say it's Google, Google Postal. No, Google National Registry of Exonerations, and okay. it pops right up. Wow. We have the longest incarcerations list, which is everyone who spent more than twenty-five years. And it's about 200. The leader is 47. Ugh. 47 years bef- in prison, innocent, and then exonerated. 
Well, there's someone here who just got out of... There's been a whole plethora of people. Yeah, here. Uh, the, the Guevara corruption. Right, uh, right, right. Um, I think four just this past week. Uh, it's an amazing thing, and it's doing. It's not doing God's work. It's doing the work of justice is what you're doing. Uh, we'll take a little break and talk to Maury about a book that he wrote. He's still writing books. He wrote a wonderful book about... Uh, the Browns Fried Chicken Massacre, as many of you may remember, that horrific crime. Uh, it's out there. What's it called? Browns Fried Chicken Massacre? Just Browns Chicken Massacre. Browns Chicken Massacre. <laughs> they, they decided to not keep We assumed the fried it was going to be fried. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can get a lot of information by, by going to Maurice Posley, P O S S L E Y dot com. We'll be back in a couple minutes to talk about uh, the book he wrote about a certain governor of this state. One day, Maury Posey and I will sit down when we're not afraid of lawsuits or anything and write the uh, history of Chicago newspapers as we knew them. Uh, go to National Registry of Exonerations dot edu or net or something. Just go to, look up National. Google. Yeah, Google National Registry of Exonerations to get some expansive knowledge about what Maury was talking about. It's, it's some chilling, chilling numbers. During your time, Maury now lives in California with his wife and their son, Vasco, uh, and a cute little doggy. I can't remember the doggy's Str- name. Stritchy. Okay. Uh, after Elaine Stritch. <laughs> after Elaine Stritch. That's true. Maury, during his time away, uh, was approached to write a book about uh, someone he knew quite well and someone who had a... A huge, I think, impact on certainly the death penalty in this state, George Ryan. How did that come about, Maury? George had worked with someone who was on his staff and had put together a manuscript. It was about 50,000 words. And he had showed it to a couple people, including Scott Turow, who he knew because Scott was on the task force that he set up to uh, reshape the death penalty. Uh, and to try to make it, which he eventually realized was futile to try to make it, you know, fair. <laughs> um, and uh, he he actually was a friend of mutual friend of ours directed him to me uh, because he said I'd like you to read this manuscript. I said, "What do you know?" And he said, "Well, I've shown it to Andrea Lyon, who's a big death penalty lawyer. I showed it to Scott Tyrone. I said, "What do they say?" And he, he said. He said, well, he said, it's bad. <laughs> so I said, well, okay, I'll read it. So um, he sent an electronic copy, I copy, and I printed it out. And uh, about a week later, I called him up, and he says, what do you think? I said, it's bad. It's bad. <laughs> <laughs> but I said, I was there when this was going on. Sure. Was reporting that myself, Steve Mills, Ken Armstrong, and others at the Tribune did contributed a lot to his knowledge and his education about what was wrong with the death penalty in illinois and i knew that there was a there is a story there oh no question and this the story that really hadn't been told in any depth was what were his thought processes and what how did a, a guy go from being a republican uh, governor and evolving into number one declared a moratorium in the death penalty right first governor first governor to do that yeah 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. and eventually wound up emptying death row 165 or 7 whatever it was uh commuted the death sentences the largest commutation in american history mm. 
because the legislature had refused to enact any of his only one uh, of the recommendations of the task force, and there were like 85 recommendations on how to improve the death penalty system, how to try to make it fair. Um, Mm. And it was broken. There was no doubt about it. Uh, The only one that got through was um, a recording of interrogations in uh, uh, homicide cases. And that was really championed by then state senator barack yeah right uh, obama right uh and but when the legislature really wouldn't act um and you may recall so we had this just a terrible two or three weeks where they decided we're gonna have clemency hearings for everybody on death row yeah yeah so and these these were the the families of the condemned, the families of the victims, of the victims, and coming in and pleading, pleading for both sides. And th- there's so much drama that I didn't know about. That was kind of what was going on in his head. What was going on? There was, you know, the. You're right, though. That's the story. I Rob think Warden that. and others, uh, Larry Marshall. Yeah, they brought the exonerated the play in. Um, which with with Danny Glover and a, a bunch of actors, specifically there was a mm, maybe a couple hundred people, but the audience was really one. It was yeah. George? It was yep. George. Wow! And the story, like little stories that came out, like uh, after it's over, the sister of Madison Hobley, who was death row guy, who eventually George pardoned on the basis of actual innocence, mm. came. She said, "You've met with." the families of uh, the victims, when are you going to meet with the families of the condemned? He said, I'll do it. Mm. And mm. and he then told, uh, well, and another story that he talked about was when he met with the, the families, he did meet with the families of the condemned. Mm. And a fellow came up to him who was from the same town that George downstate and said, are you going to kill my grandson? Oh, my God. And his grandson had been a mentally ill guy who snapped and got pulled over in a traffic violation and shot and killed a police officer. Mm. And so you kill a police officer, you're going you're to get yeah, you're right, get done. Right. But he was clearly mentally disturbed. Um, and he was one of the people that were part of the... And then the small family. Greg, oh, right, right. The Greg Small, yeah. who, who was put in a coffin, buried. He pardoned. He he took that guy off death row. Mm. And when I went down to his home, George's home, he showed me the houses right across the alley. Oh Lord, where wow. the, where Greg Small was abducted. Oh, wow. And so it was very powerful. And I think George, having lived it, and then through the the years. I don't think I don't think he even he saw it as cin- as cinematic as I did. Yeah, or else you know he never struck me and from very far away as an emotionally introspective guy. As most politicians don't strike me as introspective people. You have to be kind of pragmatic about your life and your career. Uh, that must have really been something. The title of the book is "Until I." It's a great title. Did you title this book? Well, it's a takeoff on what he said when he announced the moratorium. He said, until I can be sure mm. that no one who is innocent will be executed, that I will no longer uh, approve executions. And that's when he imposed the moratorium. 
you consider him a brave person for doing something like that, don't you? I do, and I, 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 I don't think he he did himself. I don't. He will tell you that he had no idea of of sort of the rolling impact, even internationally, particularly. I mean, this was part of this changing debate that occurred in this country, or at least in this state and other jurisdictions. Where is it more from? Is it morally right to kill people? To deter others from killing people, um, for the state to do that, to can we trust the system to execute only the guilty? Right. And right. That's when politicians realized that they could stand up and say, without being accused of being soft on crime, um, I don't believe that a system that can't be trusted to execute only the guilty should should be allowed to exist we need to change it we need to fix it we need to abolish mm. it we need to do something mm. we can't because by the time george you know we'd executed 12 and and 12 people had been exonerated he he said it's no better than flipping a coin yeah um, yeah and then of course when he saw anthony porter being released and, and it's like well journalism students are doing working on this what's what's wrong with the system why why is this happening and that was the, the question that he was his kind of his mantra was how could this happen yeah how could this be happening mm. and you know he always touted you know well i'm just a downstate pharmacist yeah, right. you yeah, know I so i never know went to, you have i'm not a lawyer yeah. but he didn't know a lot of he didn't have that experience um do you think do you think that he that there's any any element of pride that he feels in having done this or you know i'm not trying to make him whether he feels himself a hero but whether he does he get it now oh i i think he even got it um by the time he was out of office he was getting it he was after he declared the moratorium he had he allowed people like Larry Marshall at Northwestern right. Center on wrongful convictions, Rob Warden, Tom Sullivan, who was at Jenner and Block, and who was really a pioneer in the idea of recording interrogations, um, uh, not just the, the confession, but the actual interrogation, um, and others who were very knowledgeable about this, and he listened. Um, he got some advisors in, an, in, in who, one was a federal prosecutor, um, who knew the system from the prosecutorial end but also could see the fissures and cracks in the system mm. um and they reviewed all those cases you know wow. all the death row cases yeah. and when it came came time uh you know larry larry marshall told me this great story about going to uh it's december and he's going to go out of office in january and He's on the fence about whether what he's what's he going to do. At one point, he said commutation is uh, this is in sure. my mind, and, and then three weeks later, his commutation is off the table. You know, and all these lives of people are kind of swinging with what's what's going to happen here, and how is our world going to be turned upside down? And so Larry Marshall uh, uh, took him out to they went out to Navy Pier and, and had dinner and. He had these these talking points, and they order coffee, and he goes to the bathroom, and he's looking at his little list in his pocket, and he's got one to go. 
and he's telling the, the biblical story of Queen Esther, who has to reveal to the king that she's Jewish to save her people. And when she's talking to Mordecai, her uncle, about what to do, he said, who is to say, who is not to say that you were born for this moment? Oh, wow. And that's what Larry said, said to George. To George. Who I, is not to I, say I, that you were born for this moment? I have read the book, and it's a great book, and it's a great story, and it should not uh, vanish in this state. There are enough lousy stories in this state. The book is titled, Until I Could Be Sure, How I Stopped the Death Penalty in Illinois. Go to Maurice Posley, P-O-S-S-L-E-Y.com to find out what else Maury's up to.